So this morning, we're going to keep working through Philippians. We've been in this series all summer now, and we are coming to a close. Uh, I trust that you've been able to catch a few sermons, but so much more importantly, I hope you've had a chance to read through the book once or twice or a few times, because the book of Philippians is just this amazing um, piece of scripture, this letter that Paul has written to the church in Philippi, and we can see so much about what is important to Paul and what matters uh, to the Christians. Um, I love this book. If someone, if someone asked me, you know, give me a good introduction to Paul and what he's all about and what's going on with him, I would always say, you need to go and read the book of Philippians. And this summer, I've been stewing on Philippians. I've been reading through it over and over again. And I, I find that every time I do that, that the Lord speaks to me and that new things come out and uh, new things that are, I'm challenged with on how I'm supposed to be living my life and, and how I'm to understand God. Uh, We've seen some really important themes so far in this series. We've seen how passionate Paul is about the gospel. He's locked up in chains. He's literally uh, chained to a guard, and yet he says that all that matters to me is that the gospel is going forth and that the word of God is spreading uh, throughout the empire. Uh, we've seen how salvation is meant to be this lived experience for Paul. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that salvation is something that we are to live out every single day. And one of what I think is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture, we see that knowing Christ is a very real possibility. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to gain him. And everything is rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And then Steve talked about how we are to strive for that goal, pressing on to take hold of that which Christ has taken hold of us. This, this idea of really knowing Christ personally comes out in Philippians, maybe better than any other uh, book of the Bible. And throughout it, we've seen how God calls us to be citizens of heaven, that somehow we recognize um, our identity isn't just here on earth, but we're also representatives of heaven, and we are to live that way. Today's passage, we're going to get really, really practical. It's not so much a, a theological theme that we've seen so much. It it's more about down-to-earth advice on just how we're supposed to live. What's it like to live every day as a Christian with all the difficulties and challenges that life throws at us? How are we supposed to move forward in a relationship with God? And so we are uh, in chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, that's where we are. Philippians 4, verses 4 to 9. I'm going to read through it in a second here. At first glance, this passage is going to seem a little bit disjointed. Um, but as we read through it, I think you're going to see how it all kind of fits together and can be really practical and relevant advice for how uh, we as followers of Christ are to live. So let's just read it here. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. So that's our passage that we're going to just kind of work our way through this morning and try to wrap our heads around. So I'm going to kind of go through it verse by verse. It starts, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Uh, joy is a root word for rejoice. 
Joy is one of the key themes that runs throughout this letter. It shows up 16 times in the book of Philippians alone. Joy is one of Paul's primary goals from the, for the church. And he actually says this early on in chapter 1, verse 25. And he's talking about, uh, I want to come and visit you again. And here's some of the things, here's one of the reasons I want to be with you. I want to continue to be your pastor. One of the goals for me, he says this, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith. Paul says, I want to keep tracking with you for these two reasons. I want you to progress as a Christian. I want you to grow. I want you to mature. I want you to become a more devoted follower of Christ. And I want you to experience joy. And that's why I'm sticking around. And that's why I want to come and see you again. I want you to live a joyful life. Joy should be one of the distinctive marks of a follower of Jesus. And this is a joy that isn't based on just particular circumstances that we find ourselves in. Instead, it's a joy that's based on who we are in Christ and our standing with him. And we see this no better than with Paul. He's in jail. The believers are being harassed and persecuted. We see that there's unity issues in the church itself, and yet Paul, despite all the challenges that he's facing, all the stresses and worries in his own life, he says, rejoice. And I say it again, rejoice. Have joy. Joy is a sign of a mature believer. You know those people? Those people that whenever you're around them, they just exude joy. And it doesn't even matter what they're going through in life, that they could be having a really crummy day or they could be sick or something could be going on with them. And yet there's still this sense of joy and it's the kind of person that you want to be around. There's a few people that, that come to mind when I think of this, but one person in particular, his name is Bill. He's 81 years old. And he's the chair of our board on the missions committee that I, on the missions um, uh, job that I work with. And he just got back from India. He spent five weeks there. He's just this amazing man of God. He's battled through cancer. He's lost his wife. Um, he's got other challenges in his life. And yet every time I see him, every time I talk to him, there's like this radiance of joy about him. And it's not based on his situation or his circumstance. It's this joy because he's so rooted in Christ and he's so deep in his faith and he's just so passionate that the joy comes out in him. I think that's what Paul's talking about. He's saying choose to rejoice and again I say rejoice. In every circumstance that we find ourselves in we can do one of two things. We can always find a reason to complain or we can always find a reason to rejoice. There's always something to complain about or get down about but there's always a good reason to rejoice, and we need to choose the latter is what Paul is saying here. God is always good. Now, there's a public dimension to joy as well, and I think Julie sets us up so well when she leads worship. Uh, rejoice is a public celebration of who God is and all that he has done for us, and when we come together on Sunday mornings, we are choosing to rejoice together and to celebrate and to lift up the name of the Lord, and so that's why I think gatherings gathering Sunday mornings and gathering together to, to sing and to celebrate is so important. It's one of the ways in which we can cultivate joy in our lives. And so Paul says, just real basic, seek joy in your life. Being a mature Christian means uh, being a more joyful person. Next, Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. So not only are we to be marked as people of joy, we should also be marked as gentle people. Now, the word gentleness Let's be honest, it sounds a little bit wimpy. No one's looking to like win, you know, the award for being the most gentle person. Um, they don't have trophies saying most gentle person in the office. But uh, I, I think we need, might need to relook at what that word is. It's a hard word to translate from the original Greek. 
Some versions use the word uh, reasonableness. The best description that I found as I did a word study on it is, uh, for the Greek is this, um, the opposite of contention and self-seeking. That's what Paul's really trying to get at, the opposite of, of contention and self-seeking. We are to be the kinds of people that others want to be around, not harsh, not irritable, not the kind of people that create tension when you walk in the room. No, quite the opposite of that. We should be the kind of people that others are attracted to as we're reasonable and we are looking to their interests and not only to our own interests. It makes me think of one of the Beatitudes. Jesus speaks these beautiful Beatitudes. And he says, blessed are those, and he says, blessed are those who are meek. And again, meekness kind of sounds like a wimpy word, but um, I think it really represents a strength of character. It's this humble confidence that you carry with yourself that other people are drawn to. I think what Paul's getting at is that our demeanor, the way in which we carry ourselves, the way in which we act around other people, uh, should draw others in. It should encourage others. Uh, we should act as respectable and admirable people and be at peace with everyone. And I want you to notice how, um, how much of a missional statement this is by Paul. He says that our gentleness is to be evident to all. That somehow the way in which we live our lives, the way in which we carry ourselves, other people should be attracted to it. It should be evident to them. And they should ask us, why are you the way you are? Paul's saying, I want you to stand out. I want you to be missional people. I want you to look different than the world around you. Because most people are looking to their own interests. And Paul says, I want you to look to their interests first. I want you to kind of be, be this gentle person. Then he says, the Lord is near. Uh, Paul's very likely here referring directly to the passage in Psalm, Psalm 145. So what uh, the psalmist says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Now this might seem a little bit disjointed. Why, why would this sentence just show up in the middle of nowhere? And I think it has a lot to do with what's coming up. Uh, what's coming up is the don't be anxious, don't get worried passage. And one of the primary ways that we can combat worry and stress in our life is through prayer. And the reason we can pray is because of this. The Lord is near. He is close to us. Now, I want to pause and just reflect on this statement for a second. Uh, we don't believe in some sort of distant deity, some sort of uh, unapproachable, unknowable source. That is not the Christian God. We believe in a personal God, a God who has come down to us, a God who has come down to us in the incarnation, in flesh, and has left with us his spirit, and he walks with us, and he promises to be close to us and to journey with us daily. So as I work in missions in various parts of the world, I've seen how much of a drawing point this is for people uh, who are coming from other faiths towards Christianity. Instead of following a God who is either so abstract or so distant that they can't ever feel a personal connection with him, they're drawn to the Christian God who says, I am near you, I am close to you. I'm not this holy other being that you can't ever know anything about. No, God says, I care about you so much, I'm so close to you that I'm actually going to show up in your world. The miracle of the incarnation, that's Jesus has become flesh. And then Jesus leaves his Holy Spirit with us. And and as Christians, we get to journey with God through his spirit, that he is near to us. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. I think especially of the Psalms. In Psalm 23, we all know it. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not fear. He, makes me, he leads me to still waters, and it goes on and on. He refreshes my soul. It is this beautiful picture of intimacy and closeness. 
This is what God is looking for from his people. And in light of Psalm 23, what I think is one of the more powerful statements in Scripture that Jesus actually says, he says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus says, I'm with us. I'm with you. I'm as close to you as a shepherd is to his sheep. I want you to picture this imagery of the good shepherd. I want you to to notice that that's who I am, Jesus says. I am close with you. I am near you. I am with you. And that's what Paul is getting on about here. Um, Paul reminds the Philippians that despite all the pressures they're facing and all the legitimate things that they could choose to worry about, that Jesus is close. And uh, we may not feel it all the time, this may, not just, this may not be an emotion that you feel very often, but it is true nonetheless if we are people of the book and we believe in the scriptures that God declares this as true over and over and over again. This is a promise that he is near and that he is close to us. And now this leads us into one of the most quoted and famous, pas- famous passages of the Bible. Verse 6. Paul says, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every, in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, if anyone had reason to be anxious, it was Paul. He's in jail. His church is being persecuted. There are seeds of disunity within the church. At this point in his ministry, he's, he's been in ministry for quite a while. Paul's been beaten. He's been whipped. He's been shipwrecked. He's been left for abandoned. He's been almost dead a few times. And now he's writing letters from prison. If anybody had reason to worry or be anxious or be stressed out, it would be Paul. And yet he says... Don't be anxious about anything. Now, stress and worry, these are common fixtures for people today and back then. Um, Stress and worry, these are normal reactions for some of the hard things that life throws at all of us. And Paul, he doesn't tell us that these things are just going to automatically go away. But what he does do is he gives us some tools on how we can deal with the stresses and the anxieties and the, the worries of our life. I think this is true. For the most part, we can't control our circumstances. But we can control our response. We can control how we respond to whatever life throws at us. Now, I want to pause and just say, before I keep going here, let me simply acknowledge that there are some forms of anxiety that go well past the general category of common day stress or worry. And they can lead to disorders or mental illnesses. And there are certainly scenarios where professional help is needed um, for a chemical imbalance. And so I just I want to acknowledge this reality. I don't want to just give pat answers here this morning. Uh, I want to make sure that we understand that there are levels of anxiety that people deal with. But with that said, I believe the tools that Paul gives us here, they are very real ways in which we can combat some of the stresses that we, and, and anxiety that we face in our life. And this is what Paul says. He simply says this. He says, pray. He says, bring it to God. Now, we've all heard the Christianese terms, you know, bring it to God or lay it at the foot of the cross or just leave it with Jesus Um, And it sounds really Christianese and really cliche, but this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, tell God what's going on in your life. Now, I don't know what your upbringing has been, but um, for many people, they've been taught that prayer is this very formal, this very solemn, this very serious event. And again, it kind of gives this image that God is just so far up there. We've got to pray the right things and do the right things in order for him to hear from us. And I would suggest to you that that is just the wrong way in which we pray. That prayer very much is a relational conversation with God. Um, We get to be in relationship with him. We get to commune with the living God. And Paul says, just bring it to God and pray about it and talk to him. 
We get to call God our Father and we get to bring before Him the situations of our life. However meaning or trivial they might feel to you, Paul says, bring it to God and pray about it. In every situation, God cares about us and He wants to hear from us. Here's what happens when we pray. Through prayer, we're acknowledging that God is Lord and we are submitting to Him. So we're coming before Him with, with the words of our life and we're saying, God, I, God, I acknowledge you as Lord and I'm submitting myself to you. And we are speaking out our stresses and we dialogue with him. Now, this isn't some magical formula that all of a sudden your issues are going to go away. That's not what happens. We all know that. But through prayer, we remind ourselves of who's in control. And we remind ourselves of who we're submitting to. We remind ourselves of the bigger picture. We remind ourselves of whose kingdom we're living for. That's what happens when we go to God in prayer. In prayer, we can sense a nearness of God who is constantly reaching out to us, a God who promises to journey with us in, in all the situations of our life. Uh, without prayer, I can't imagine facing the difficulties of life. Prayer, prayer really is the, the chief of all the spiritual disciplines. You cannot go very far in the scriptures without seeing prayer as one of the, the, the primary ways in which people have experienced God. Just to name a few, Daniel, he's thrown into the lion's den. Why? Because he refused to stop praying. David, he wrote the majority of the Psalms. He's considered a man after God's own heart. And all those Psalms that you read, they are Psalms of prayers or laments or praises, but they are ways of David communicating with God through prayer. We see prayer in every single letter that Paul writes. He's constantly praying for the church and he's constantly asking for prayer. And we see it in Jesus. Jesus is constantly praying. He takes 40 days to go fast and pray before he goes out into ministry. He prays all night before he picks his 12 disciples. He prays all night before he's about to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and, uh, and crucified. He's, he has many parables about prayer. He teaches disciples how to pray. We are told in Mark and Luke that Jesus would actually get up early in the morning before daybreak and pray before he started his day. So as Christians, we're taking our cues from Jesus. He prayed a lot. Prayer was really essential for him. And as we start reading the history of some of the great Christians of the past, prayer is always on the front lines for them. As you study some of the great revivals throughout history, it is prayer that was the catalyst. And the leaders of those great revivals were prayers. We see this over and over again. Jonathan Wesley, you may have heard his name. He's a great evangelical revivalist. This is what he says. I'm going to throw some quotes up there for you. Jonathan Wesley says this, The church marches on its knees. William Law, a great Puritan in the English Reformation there, he says, Prayer is the nearest approach to God and the highest enjoyment of Him that we are capable of in this life. He's got a pretty high view of prayer. Matthew the Poor, a great Eastern Orthodox theologian, he says, Without prayer, man loses the meaning of his existence and the purpose of his creation. I love this. And Matthew the Poor continues to go on and he says, he says Actually, the most human thing that you can do is to pray. That, that, that's the most natural thing that we can do because that's what we were created for. And then Martin Luther, uh, the, the great Reformation guy in the 1500s, he says this, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. You see how the, the, some of the strongest Christian people throughout history have made prayer just absolutely essential for experiencing your Christian life and for, for knowing God. What I'm counseling people, and they come to me and they say, I'm just not, I'm not feeling God. I'm not, I'm not feeling this faith anymore. I feel very dry. I got a number of questions, but the first question that I always ask right off the bat is I just say, how's your prayer life? Have you been talking to God? 
Because the bottom line is if you stop praying, your Christianity is going to die because we are in a relationship with God. We don't, this isn't some sort of uh, set of doctrines or statements of belief. This isn't some sort of uh, cognitive assent. This is a living relationship with the living God, and we need to talk with him and commune with him through prayer. That's fundamentally what Christianity is, and this is what Paul is talking about in this passage. He points to prayer as the way forward in our life, even in the midst of worry and stress and anxiety. He says, keep on praying. And I want to highlight here as well that in the midst of our prayers and our petitions and our requests, that we are to remember to be thankful people. Uh, thankfulness keeps everything in perspective. It keeps us grounded in the truth that God is good. And uh, it helps us from uh, taking God for granted. Because it's easy to do that. It's easy to, to, to come to God and say, God, here's what I need and here's what's on my heart. And there's nothing wrong with that. But thankfulness keeps everything in perspective. And it, it allows us to just go, God, thank you for these things. We try to get in the habit uh, most nights when we pray with our kids to go, what are you thankful for today? Because we don't want it to just be about asking God for things. We want to make sure that we're acknowledging that God is good and that he is kind and that he is gracious and that we are uh, living out this spirit of thankfulness uh, with him. So instead of soaking in our anxiety and becoming more stressed and worried, we are to pray and to be thankful and lay our worries before the Lord. And then verse 7, this is what's going to happen. The peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say God will take away all of your stressful circumstances that are causing you to be anxious. Now, certainly we know that God is capable of doing that, and in some situations, he very well might do that. But it seems to me as we read the scriptures that God is more interested in forming character in us, character that can allow us to face whatever life throws at us, character that allows us to be the godly, Christ-like people that we're called to be. That's why transformation and sanctification are such important concepts for the Christian, because we are to be growing and maturing and being able to handle the things that life uh, throws at us here. Paul tells us that when we pray, God's peace comes in, and somehow it surpasses our human understanding and it guards our anxious thoughts. And then peace comes. Because as we pray, we are expressing our trust in God. Now, this is hard to explain. It's hard for me to put words on how this actually happens. It sounds a little bit uh, mystical, really. Um, hard to explain, but it's the kind of thing that you can experience. And I think many of you, most of you have probably experienced this before. I can think of times in my life where I have felt very stressed out, where a big decision in my life or a situation in ministry that I'm facing that I feel totally overwhelmed with, uh, I could go on and on about, about things that cause stress and anxiety. And I am compelled. I've learned over the years. Um, I'm compelled to go and pray. I need to go and just talk to God about it. And so I go for a walk because I don't sit very well. So I go for a long walk. And I just talk to God. And I, and, and I, I lay out the anxiety and the worry before him. And I listen. And I just, I just I spend this time in prayer. I do what Paul's talking about. And then I come back. And I can tell you over and over again, somehow I have this sense of peace. The situation I'm, I'm dealing with, it's still there. It's not like it just went away, but somehow I have a different perspective. That God's peace has somehow uh, mysteriously come in. And I, and I feel like I have a different perspective on how I can handle the situation. And this has happened to me over and over again. And I know many of you can testify to this. And this is what Paul is talking about. We are to pray and then wait and let God give you some peace. Verse 8. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, this is just really practical advice that Paul gives. In some ways, you could call it the power of positive thinking. Now, people have taken that concept way too far. I'm certainly not a name it and claim it kind of guy. But uh, I think the wisdom here is that uh, we ought to fill our minds with things that are positive rather than negative. The more things that we fill our minds with that are positive, most likely the more positive person you're going to be. This is actually a really interesting section to look into uh, because Paul's actually appealing to what uh, the Roman, uh, Greco-Roman pagan culture considered important virtues. And it's one of the few times in Scripture that he appeals to these virtues that the common culture thought were important. But he acknowledges that these are good things. And he acknowledges that there's positive things in here. It's just, it's just an obvious statement that the, the more negative things that you focus on, the more negative things that you fill your mind with, the more naturally negative of a person you'll probably end up being. And the opposite of that is true. When you fill yourself with positive things and you're reading positive things and you're watching positive things and you're hanging out with positive types of people, chances are that's going to rub off on you. And so I think the question that we are left asking ourselves, that Paul might ask if he was here, is uh, what sorts of influences are you letting into your mind? What sorts of things are you reading? Are you watching? Or people that you're hanging out with? What, what are you allowing shape you and influence you? I'm always amazed at Paul's boldness here at the end. He says, watch me. He says, whatever you've seen in me or heard in me, put it into practice. Um, I'm always amazed at that. That's not something I've ever said to somebody. You know, hey, look at me, watch me. But I think it's a pretty good goal to have, to, to, to try and strive to be the kind of person that other people want to look up to and watch to be the kind of person that sets an example in his life. And Paul certainly was there to say, you know what, you want to know what it's like to follow Christ and to be sold out for him? Look at my life. And uh, I think that's a good goal. That would be a goal that I would have, that I could say that to somebody. Now, I probably never would, but um, it'd be nice to, um, you know, strive to be that sort of person. So, let's just sum it up here. Joy, prayer, thanksgiving, peace. These are things that Paul would say are essential Christian practices. And then lived out, these practices produce gentleness and a sense of calm in the midst of the anxiety and the worries of our life. And this is all made possible because of the promise that God is near, that he is close to us, that he is our shepherd. So this is what people following Jesus ought to be striving for and experiencing in their life. So that's our passage. That's Philippians. It's just good, down-to-earth, practical, everyday ways in which we can choose to live our life and be the kinds of people that God has called us to be. So, let's pray. God, I thank you that we can be here again this morning, and I thank you for just good words from the Scriptures that uh, inspire us to be more like you. And I just pray for all of us that whatever issues and anxieties that we are facing, Lord, that we would uh, just lay it at your feet and pray about them and experience your peace. God, we just thank you that you are near, that you do care, that you are knowable, that you are approachable, and that we can pray. God, we are so grateful for that. We just give you praise. Amen.